0: hey friends you know i love a good story especially if it's a god story that encourages and equips us in our own walk with him i'm your host jody caracosta ministry leader at somebody cares america international author and traveler on this journey of faith and i want to introduce you to a woman who knows there is no ceiling with god the reverend dr susan bubbers and i first met when we were both pretty fresh out of college and working as computer programmers God had called each of us to Sprege University for more training, and we were both working full-time while in school. We became fast friends as we talked about our similar backgrounds, jobs, and future plans. The Lord took us in slightly different directions once we graduated, and it's been inspiring to see all God is doing in, for, and through Susan to this day. The Reverend Susan Bubbers is founder and president of the Atlas Theological Center based in Celebration, Florida, right near Disney. Uh as well as the founding priest and rector of Celebration Anglican Fellowship. Uh, Susan has numerous degrees, including a PhD in uh, sacramental theology from the London School of Theology, a doctorate of ministry in spiritual formation from the Reformed Theological Seminary, and a doctorate of Anglican studies from Virginia Theological Seminary. Susan, it doesn't feel like you've had that much time to complete all those degrees and write two books. Pet Prayers, and the Scriptural Theology of Eucharist Blessings. Along with being a contributing author to magazines and other scholarly books, Susan has also served as a host at a host of other churches and seminaries, some of which you'll hear about today. So let's get at it. Welcome, Susan. Yes, hello. Your book, Pet Prayers, caught my attention years ago when you told me you were writing it because I am an animal lover and I often have prayed over my pets for various things because... First Peter, five seven tells us that uh, we're to give all of our worries to God because He cares for us. And you know, if you're a pet lover, when your pet is not doing well, it's a worry. (laughs) Let's face it, pets are a huge part of our lives and our families. So, what inspired you to write that book, and and what's it really about?
1: It's actually a a story that's near and dear to my heart, and I'm so glad that you're an animal lover, Jody. I I first want to say, talk about relationships in general, because the book came out of my relationship with my pets. And, you know, you and me, we've been friends for, (laughs) should I say this to your audience? (laughs) 30 something years. Okay, nobody do math out there. And it's such a tremendous blessing that our friendship is still alive and well, and we've been, God has kept us prayer partners all these years. And so that makes me think of this theological truth. Actually, I, I preached about it in a sermon not long ago, and it provides a theological kind of basis to the whole idea of the book pet prayers and another question that um, often comes up so here it is here's the one-liner kind of theological underpinning the only thing we take with us when we go to heaven is our relationships it's the only thing we take with us from this life into the next is our relationships obviously firstly our relationship with god because that's the biggie (laughs) as we transition from this life to the next so our relationship with god our relationships with other souls. So you and me, you know, in eternity Sunday we're going to be talking about this time that we shared on on your podcast. I love it. It's all about loving others and God bonds souls together because re- relationships are eternal. And as an animal lover and as one, you'll get this, I've learned that in addition to bonding with God and bonding with other humans, God has made us so that we are able to bond with animals. Hmm. God cares about all of his creatures. God is bonded to his animals. Proverbs 12.10 says a righteous person has regard or takes care of the lives of animals. And all through the Psalms and other places, we read how God's creation proclaims his glory. And that isn't just the stars in the sky, it's the animals in our lives. So that gets me to how I wrote this book and how I think it came to be and why it's so near and dear to my heart. <clears throat> it's all about relationships. So I had really bonded to my beloved cat, Charis, which, by the way, I named her for the Greek word Charis, which you and I learned <laughs> in Greek class. <laughs> yes. Charis, that's so Charis. And she was a very, very important relationship in my life. And God cared about my bond with Karis and used her many times to comfort me and encourage me. So when Karis died, I was, of course, heartbroken and torn apart. And I was pastoring a church in Sebastian, Florida. And at that time, I was quite a bit younger than the majority of my parishioners. I was struggling a bit to build a closer relationship with them because of the age difference and circumstances difference. So the Sunday after my cat Karis died, I opened up to my people from the pulpit when I was preaching. And I told them how I had taken the liturgy that I used to bury people. And I rewrote it in order to have it fitting and a meaningful way for me to bury Karis. Now, at the shakeout, you know, that's what we call when we shake the hands, you know, as people are leaving. the Oh, yeah. At the (laughs) shakeout, um, the door that day, I had more conversations than I had ever had before at the shakeout. And people were warmly shaking my hand and giving me hugs and offering me condolences and telling me all about their own pets and inviting me to their homes for the first time. Not so much to spend time with them, but they wanted me to come over to meet their pets <laughs> and asking me to come over and pray for their pets.
0: That's really interesting. So
1: Karis's legacy was to help me bond more closely with my people. Yeah. And from there, I began to write other prayers for pets. I wrote a pet blessing ceremony. Some churches on St. Francis Day, you bring all your pets to church and you pray blessings. It's a great, great way to bomb, bond, great outreach to, you know, people in the neighborhood come (laughs) with their pets, even if they never go to church. So I wrote prayers for a family, for wisdom. When you're looking for a new pet, you know, selecting the right one is really important. There's a bedtime song in this book um, to help kids learn how to pray by praying for their pets. (laughs) And a a lot more Uh, Prayers that I just started writing because of this anointing that just came on because of me sharing And then all of those prayers got collected together and eventually that's what's published in the book called pet prayers So very personal story and I could go on and on more time than we have about how God has used it to help me Connect with people who don't even go to church because they love their pets and we have that bond in common
0: Oh, I bet. Well, the big question we all want to know, of course, Susan, is mm-hmm. do pets go to heaven?
1: Yes. And my publisher gave me only one short page in that book to address it. And so um, <laughs> <laughs> so it is a common question. And I just want to affirm people it's a valid question. It is not just a sentimental peripheral question. It's a very, very important question. It has a lot of theological you know, um, connections, too. And I have spent quite a bit of time on this question. So I offer a resounding answer of yes. Yes, Pets Kevin. Heaven. Yes, and it is not. I'm not offering just a sentimental answer. No. I don't know if I told you this part. You might not have seen this on. Um, so I'm also a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And I could talk a lot about that. Go look them up on the website. But um, among us are PhDs who are doing quite a bit of high-level academic work about questions such as this. Because it has to do with souls and it has to do with eternity and it has to do with the nature of God and relationships and all of that. And so there's a related theological question that's, you know, out there these days about the Bible's view of a Christian's responsibility to steward creation. And so that has some to do with it. If animals have souls, then we have a greater response. So it's a big question. So I'm just going to give you two quick. (laughs) And again, cut me off. Be brave. Just say okay. Let's yeah.
0: move on to the next question. No, I mean I want to hear this. I want to hear this. I mean my my dog, yeah. my my very dear dog Riley, died two years ago, and right. for me, I mean I I looked at that verse, you know, where it says the lion will lay down with the lamb mm-hmm. in 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 the new heaven, yeah. and that to me was very comforting because if the lion and the if there's a lion and mm-hmm. a lamb in heaven, then yes. my dog Riley's probably there too. So you know that was comforting to me. Because he was a very dear part of our lives. Yes,
1: many, allusion, many many scriptures that um, have the uh, uh, just connotation about it. And, and so um, that kind of scripture speaks the answer yes. Um, oh, I remember. Do you remember Dr. Story? So someone oh, yeah. asked Dr. Story this question in Greek class once. And I don't remember exactly, so don't quote me like I'm saying you, telling you exactly what he said. But he sure. reported to us in our class that his son had asked him this question. And he answered it something like this. I'm getting, you know, kind of a paraphrase. But the idea was, if you need your pet to be in heaven, in order for heaven to be heavenly, then yes, your pet will be there. (laughs) You know, if you need your pet to be in heaven for it to be heaven, then your pet will be there because it's heaven. Uh, So for me, heaven just wouldn't be heavenly. If all of those precious souls that I've bonded to and have relationships with in this life that happen to be pets, weren't there, wow, it would be a huge. My life here would be missing something. And so when I say that to to other theologians, sometimes there's the, well, but Jesus is your all in all. You won't need that in heaven. And that's okay. And uh, so we don't have time to get into the deeper. um, That's, uh, from my perspective, more of a Gnostic view. You know, Jesus came to give us life and give us life abundantly. Abundant life here and in the forever includes everything that God ever created to make life abundant. And that includes his creatures. Um, I think they're going to be flowers of some kind or whatever beauty is in heaven. It's not just going to be me in a white room with no color singing praises for all eternity. It's going to be even more beautiful in terms of the new heavens and the new earth, remember, and the new earth. So whatever God has created is gonna be new and better. Okay, so let me move on. That's that's point, uh second point I gotta throw in here. I gotta throw this in. Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Real quick, the word for life and soul in the Hebrew is exactly the same, all three places it appears in this verse. It's just translated into the English, life in two places and soul in one place. So it actually says, For the nephesh of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your nephesh, for it is the blood by reason of the nephesh that makes atonement. So here, just summarizing it um, animals have souls is really the question does an animal have a soul because souls from the christian worldview, don't evaporate at death that would be an eastern view so if an animal has a soul now it's not a soul that needs to be saved because it doesn't it doesn't know the difference between good and evil um and so they're in a state of innocence and so they can't sin they don't need to be saved but just because they don't need to be saved doesn't mean they don't have a soul so animals have a different ontological kind of soul and that soul and I, i okay think of it this way in the old testament People were sinning, right? Sinning, sinning, sinning. And God gave the Old Testament system. And the word atonement is used here. God gave animal sacrifice for the purpose of making atonement. Hmm. The shedding of animal blood. The giving of animal souls. Here in Leviticus 17.11 was the system that God provided for atonement. Now, it wasn't atonement the way that Paul uses the Greek term the New Testament. This is an idea like a credit card. Think of all the sin that humans were accumulating and accumulating this huge debt. And just like we have a credit card that covers the expenses, but they're not paid for. Animal souls, God says, I gave you animal souls as your credit card to make atonement, to cover the charge, the debt of all of that sin until Jesus came to actually pay the bill that yeah. due. do. Okay, so animal blood does not, uh, in the New Testament sense, um, take away or pay the penalty of sin. But in the Old Testament, that whole Old Testament, ever thought about animals, God, blood, and you know, what was all that? Yeah. There's power in a soul. Okay, there's mm. power in a soul. And the shedding of blood was the giving of the soul. It was meant to teach humans the great cost of sin, okay? Sin yeah. means death. It was a great big lesson. So Jesus came, he's the one who paid the penalty for sin. But in the Old Testament, sure. animal souls were the credit card to cover it until Jesus got here to, to handle it all. And so, you know, humans have. Um, uh, and there's a whole other thing that we're studying at the Oxford Center about ontolo- uh, ontology, the humans, we had a perfect state of being before the fall. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we're gonna have a perfect state of being, you know, we won't decay and our whole brains will work, whatever that looks like, we use 10% of it now. Yeah. Well, think about this, animals had a perfect state before the fall. Animals will have, yeah, all creation, all creation had a perfect state before the fall. So in the new heavens and the new earth, animals will have a perfect state too. Mm. So not only will they be there (laughs) in heaven, they're gonna be, a better version of themselves, just like we're going to be a better version of ourselves. So, can you tell that I have it a lot? <laughs> oh, you know, that's just scratching the surface.
0: I think you've laid laid that question to rest for me. Good, hopefully, good. for all of our listeners out there. All right. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. But Susan, your journey with God uh, has been a bit unconventional and fascinating. But when did that journey begin for you? How and when did you put your faith in Jesus? So
1: I'm not one of those people who have this dramatic conversion before and after kind of story. My testimony is more about God's faithfulness and how he knew how to reach me where I was. And so Mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons, as a young child, I spent a lot of time alone. My mom had cancer when I was a toddler. Both of my older siblings are, let's say, (laughs) strong-willed. Is that how we we say Um, (laughs) strong-willed? So I spent a lot of time alone as a young child. But my mom did take us to church. And so even before I could walk and talk, I was hearing the gospel, experiencing worship. So one of my very first memories, I mean, if you were to ask me, Susan, tell me, you know, on one hand, the first memories you have ever. One of my very first memories is having a conversation with Jesus. I was Mm. sitting in a rowboat in the canal behind our house alone, as I very often was. I was, I'm guessing eight or nine. I don't think mom let me in the rowboat unless I you know, went <laughs> without her looking yeah. when I was younger yeah. than that. Um, and I really don't have many memories of interacting with people before that. One of my first memories okay. is having a conversation with Jesus. Wow. And so the way I say it is Jesus is my first friend chronologically Mm -hmm. he was my first friend and first in priority he's number one friend um so that's how it all started now you skip ahead fast forward to when i was in college because this is more about how my like grown-up commitment kind of
0: part of that question
1: uh so when i was in college not long after i was spirit filled i went on a short-term mission trip And that's really where my sense of my whole life is about Jesus, you know, and I had been to a church, experienced the infilling of the spirit. You know, I was always ready to say yes to whatever God was, was doing or saying,
0: but my Uh
1: real, my whole life is about Jesus was when I was on a short-term mission trip. And this is also when I start sensing a call, started sensing again, this didn't happen immediately either. I started sensing a call into full-time, what we would call full, everybody I think is in full-time ministry, but the full-time, sure. what you do, you know, what you what do you do when people ask you that question? Um, yeah. I heard the Lord say when I was on the mission field, do this, meaning what I was doing on the mission field, do this instead of being a computer programmer. I was, uh, that was a summer after my freshman year in college. And okay. so it took several years after that for that sense of call to clarify, and mature, and by the time I graduated undergraduate, I knew that whatever computer job I was going to get next was kind of a means to an end of being trained and ordained. Um, so f- for me, the my um, meeting Jesus was like when I became aware that I was alive. <laughs> I didn't have any memory <laughs> of it, Jesus? I mean, yeah. he was there he was—he was as real as if I was looking at a person sitting, and I was just talking to him about my day. Here I am rowing and look at the fish. And Jesus was my friend in the rowboat. let skip ahead to college. Wow. It's really when I started feeling like, okay, my whole life is about this. And Jesus yeah. is leading me in this direction.
0: So I had no idea, you know, why God sent me to graduate school until I was well into my studies. I mean, I went purely out of obedience. I, I uh, had an undergraduate degree of computer programming as well. So mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be a big deal international computer consultant and traveling the world and making a lot of money and then god said now i want you to go to graduate school and i you know i wasn't too happy about it i made a deal with god and i lost <laughs> that happens, yeah yes yeah, so i headed off to school which really was a win for me because i didn't know who i was at that point i mean we think we know who we are when we're you know teenagers and when we're in college but oh, we really don't uh-uh. know who we are uh-uh. i headed off to school and you know, started to get a degree in international communications. And then while I was there, I thought I would be a foolish not to go ahead and get a degree in Bible as well. I mean, here are some amazing men and women of God. I mean, why couldn't why not just take take advantage of it while I was there? So that's that's kind of what brought me there. But I mean you really and 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 God gave me a sense of where I was going there. But you really had a sense before you got there.
1: Yes. So um like I said, after my freshman year in college, I was on the mission field, just short term, you know, two week. one of those mm-hmm. things kids do. And that's when God started talking to me about it. So when I got back from that mission trip, I got really involved in the local church. By that time, I was going to the big Assembly of God church. And I was leading Bible studies in my home and having an outreach on the campus and really involved. And so um, it just grew over the next three, four years. And I knew that I was going to need some kind of education. You can't. You can't just be a COBOL programmer and then get in a pulpit you know <laughs> at, least I didn't, at least i didn't feel ready and so i looked at several graduate schools and regent was the one that i felt called to and god confirmed that direction by giving me a job i got a job at unisys first before i mm-hmm. joined you uh, at cbn and um so the fact that all of the pieces came together so i got a job uh, so i was able to afford to move to i was living in florida undergrad So my job in Virginia Beach um, gave me the finances to be able to move to where the school was that I wanted to go to. And like you, I was working and going to school. And so God really just wove all of that together. And and like you just said, exactly, Jody, I was still figuring it out. I felt called in a direction, and I was still figuring out exactly what that was going to look like. And so the MDiv program was uh, ongoing discernment. I knew the direction. I really didn't, didn't know much about the details Uh,
0: so it's interesting i mean you grew up in a lutheran church and then you were going to an assemblies of god church so how and when did you decide to become an episcopal or anglican priest i mean that's that's a big departure
1: yes so lutherans and episcopalians are kind of like cousins you just think germany for lutheran and think england for anglican in terms of protestantism uh at, at its beginnings and then a lot of other things came out of those to, uh, and Calvin, you know, Presbyterian. So Lutheran and Episcopal is very close. Um, I started going to the assembly of God church in college because they had this big, lively young adult group, people my age. And Mm -hmm. I grew up in this tiny Lutheran church. I was like one of the only ones (laughs) in my age group. So (laughs) it was so novel and exciting to have that social part of a group And that's really, I didn't know anything about the theological differences. I just went where it looked like it was going to be fun (laughs) in college. And so, but that's where I learned about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I hadn't heard about that in my Lutheran church, although I was pretty solid on the gospel message itself, you know, how how to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and um, like that. But in terms of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, the importance of Bible study, all of that I learned in the Assemblies of God world. I'm so thankful for that. So when I got to Regent, I started visiting. I think you and I even talked about we visited here and there some together. I think our paths occasionally outside the classroom do like that. And uh, I looked for Lutheran churches. Nothing clicked. I went to some Assembly of God churches off and on. And finally, eventually, I found the Episcopal Church in Chesapeake. Uh, George Stockwell was there at the time. I don't know who's the rector there now. So uh, it was a spirit-filled Episcopal Church. So they were all the gifts of the Spirit at the same time having communion. And those were the two things that really fed my soul uh, was everything the Spirit wanted to do, but also being able to kneel and feel that reverence at the altar Mm -hmm. of communion. Because I grew up with that, and so I was missing it, actually, in the AG world. And so, yeah, that's how I ended up Episcopalian. I just didn't find a Lutheran church that fit or an AG church that fit. And I went to an Episcopal church and knelt at the altar and someone had a prophetic word for me while I was receiving communion. And I thought, Oh, I'm home. This works for me. <laughs> this yeah. Is great. Yeah. So that's how that all came together.
0: So for listeners who aren't familiar really with the Episcopal or Anglican expression of the Christian faith, how would you describe it?
1: Anglican is just, it just refers to any Christian church. So it's Christian. Jesus is Lord. The Bible mm-hmm. is true. You know, the whole thing. Uh, Anglican is Christian. And it refers to the group of churches that trace their origins back to the Christians in England. And by the way, that started in the first century A.D., very early, the first decades, because the disciples of the original apostles, Polycarp, those kind of people, they went over there. So we, within a generation of the writing of the New Testament, we have... A church in Britain. And so Christianity is almost as ancient there as anywhere else in the world, except for perhaps Rome and Jerusalem, obviously. So Anglicanism defines itself as those churches that trace their roots back to that mother church, if you will, in the region of England. And then the term Episcopal is just the American word for Anglican, (laughs) because Revolutionary War separated from uh, England, in England, the church and the monarchy were all wrapped up together. So if we're revolting against the monarchy, we're also revolting. So anyway, they had to have a different word because they weren't gonna be part of the English monarchy or church system anymore. So the uh, Anglicans after the Revolutionary War in America just started referring to themselves as Episcopal, which by the way, it just comes from the word episcopos, which is the word we get bishop from. And it just means, our our commitment is that every pastor needs a pastor a bishop is oh. a pastor of pastors okay. and so i have a pastor even though i'm a pastor but we're not as hierarchical as say orthodox or roman catholics where you would keep going up from there that then bishops would have somebody and somebody and somebody after that um so we're kind of a flat <laughs> hierarchical group where every pastor needs a pastor so okay. we don't have any pastors that are like in an independent church. And that's where we would probably find our distinction um, yeah. uh, about why we're called that.
0: The, um, the, just a little bit of an aside, uh-huh. the, the thing I learned, the, the place I learned most about the Episcopal world. I mean, I went to a couple Episcopal churches um, services over time, but uh, was reading um, Jane Karen's series on, um, the Mitford series mm. with uh, Father Tim, who is a Episcopalian rector in a small little town in the mountain town. And uh, he, I just, just, you know, fell in love with the way that he approached and, and, you know, the Episcopal um, faith kind of approached their faith and, and serving people in the community. And of course, every pastor and rector is their own person, but, um, that's an aside, just well, and, as anyone and, out there wants no, to read and, a no, good no, series no, well, said.
1: <laughs> well said, that's one reason why we have some of the nomenclature we do like we say parish um mm-hmm. instead of church because our view of church is universal or even at least diocesan a big region, so there's this big movement that's going on about the di- a church distributed. <laughs> it was so funny. I was oh. getting my demon degree and they took us to this big church that was starting this new system. And they were so excited about having discovered this way to do big church better. And so they were describing how, you know, the big church in, in the kind of middle of the geography was going to have these outstations and they're going to have an outstation over there. And we're going to have kind of like a sub pastor with a in that neighborhood. And then we're going to have a sub pastor mm-hmm. over there in that neighborhood. And we're going to call it a church distributed. I just had to chuckle because it's like, well, that's uh, uh, you know, a uh, mother church with a bishop, and then you have pastors, priests in their <laughs> parishes. So a parish, <laughs> a parish is never really meant to get huge. The idea is yeah. to have a couple hundred people that you're really um, pastoring <clears throat> and and focusing on those, but you're not all by yourself. I'm part, yeah. you know, <clears throat> most dioceses get to be 50, 60, 70 churches, and you know i have 50 pastors that i'm friends with and when we get together for that kind of diocesan event we have you know 10,000 people and it's as big as a mega church but we just don't try to get together with the whole mega church every sunday so yeah the just so you know the idea of a diocese and a bishop um that's really what this idea of a distributed church is rediscovering you have a central okay. church with the, the main pastor that would be the bishop and then you have your sub pastors that are out there in the neighborhoods, taking care of smaller groups of people. And yeah,
0: I think that makes it uh, a little more uh-huh. um, relatable uh-huh. to people who aren't in who aren't in that world.
1: Yeah, relationships. It's all yeah. about relationships. Uh-huh.
0: So you became a rector, a pastor, uh-huh. um, and you were at served at several churches while you were also getting. Yep. your numerous doctor's degrees, yeah. which is, that's yeah. a big challenge. So yeah, yeah. what motivated you to do all of that all at once? And how are you really, my question is how are you able to keep a vibrant relationship with the Lord while you were under all that pressure? I mean, you're a doctorate degree is, that's a big deal. Yeah. And, and, and you didn't go to, you know, I mean, yeah. you went to some no nonsense schools. Yeah. The
1: Seven Eleven. Um, So I have two, two thoughts about that. The first is, Um, maintaining that conversation I had with Jesus in the rowboat. Mm -hmm. I have to keep it personal. I have to be able to see the face of Jesus and hear his voice in my daily walk. And of course I go through times where, you know, the dark night of the soul. I don't know if you've read about, you know, we go through seasons where it's easier or harder, but by and large, that's a, a desire of my heart that I have to keep as my first priority. So I'll give you an example of how that kind of interaction with the Lord can keep me healthy and motivated through all of that blah, blah, blah stuff you just said. So I've been ordained a few years. And I was at a clergy retreat. And actually, statistically, some people who get ordained in whatever denomination of the Christian faith, um, a few years, and there's a high, what's the word for you lose them? Uh, anyway, a lot of people drop out after not too long. Yeah. So I was hitting that, you know, is this life going to be, am I in it for the long haul? Like in the military, do you do your four years and you're done <laughs> or are you alive, yeah. you know? And so I was at a clergy retreat and during worship, I heard the Lord, not a prophetic word outside, but in inside my soul, I heard the Lord speak to me in that special way, like when, when we're in the rowboat (laughs) or when I'm on the mission Mm. field, you know, that kind of speak to me. And he simply said this phrase, no ceilings. Hmm. And isn't it amazing how succinct God is okay that I got to learn from God more about how to do that, how to, (laughs) how to be succinct. (laughs) God just said no ceilings, how succinct and powerful God's word is. So in that moment I felt released. From all those expectations of what a quote unquote normal priest's ministry should look like,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: expectation of just filling in the job description or of whatever church that already existed that I could convince them to hire me, you know, that whole system. I just felt so released from all of that. And God launched me on a path that led to me rebuilding failing churches, three of the churches where I was a pastor. They were almost ready to close their doors and god brought me in and by the way i used some of that systems an- analysis training that we got you know a system yeah a computer programmers taught systems analysis so the bishop put yeah. me in some places that needed to be analyzed and their whole system needed to be redone just like you're in a business if it's not working you gotta fix it <laughs> you know what you're yeah doing. and so Um, God
0: doesn't waste anything. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's right. So I was just able to step out and do some different kinds. I was able to think of innovative different things because there are no ceilings. So you don't have to do it the way everybody's done it before. And I've written about subjects that haven't been written about at least very much before. I've pioneered a couple of ministries that didn't exist before. And so praise the Lord. I, I am just juiced whenever the Lord speaks to me I am motivated whenever he speaks to me that kind of word, and no ceilings <laughs> was one of them. Yeah. I actually asked Oz Guinness that same oh. question at a different clergy conference some years later. I asked him almost exactly the same thing, and mm-hmm. he took a moment to reflect, and then he said one profound word. See, I still haven't learned that succinctness. Okay, he said one. <laughs> <laughs> he said one word. <laughs> Worship. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I teased it out of him and he kept talking about it. But basically, I've learned that my time alone with God with my guitar, I don't say I'm not uh-huh. like a praise leader for get up in front of a church. I but I got to yeah. I got to sit. I got to play my guitar and sing the praise songs I know from memory and close my eyes and enter into that holy place. My time with worship alone, but also gathered together with others who love Jesus being in that communal worship. So I would say worship. Like Os Guinness said, worship recharges my batteries. And it helps me to know what direction to go because you sense where the holiness is. Worship. Yeah. In in the holy place, pressure is relieved. Mm. You get into the holy place, and it's like that old fashioned pressure cooker, you know, um, pressure is released when you get into the holy place. Hope is revived when you get into the holy place. And so I would add to Oz's one word, my word enthusiasm have you ever thought about it this way the etymology is en for the greek word which means in i n and then theos greek word for god so when god is in something there will be enthusiasm and when there's enthusiasm for something that is an indicator of where god is and if i stick to the narrow path in life that is defined by authentic enthusiasm that god is putting in my heart You know, I'm not trying to do what everybody else says and blah, blah, blah. No, you know, God says no ceilings. Stick with the enthusiasm that I put in your heart. And that's where he, that's how he points me where to go. And that's how he gives me the energy to go there. It's all about enthusiasm, God-given, not artificially revved up, but God-given enthusiasm that I find while I'm in worship.
0: Mm. And I think that is so key Uh that anybody can Uh can know Uh if God is in something is there that that joy that welling up that enthusiasm about doing something that doesn't fade Uh uh, as soon as you step away from the motivational speaker or you know (laughs) whatever you're hearing you know you can get excited enthused about anything if somebody is enthusiastic enough about it but if God is enthusiastic in your soul then it doesn't fade.
1: Yes. In that sense, excitement is very different than enthusiasm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So pastoral ministry is, is a challenging call. Uh, And as a single woman in that calling, you've, you know, what, what have been your greatest Uh challenges and some of your, some of your highest joys? I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're in an unusual position for a woman. And, and even as a single woman, it's even more unusual.
1: Yeah. I remember when I first got ordained, I was the only single person getting ordained, and I was the only female getting ordained. Mm. So yes, from the beginning, I have felt odd. <laughs> I <have> felt different <laughs> and I have felt lonely. Um, every human heart desires to feel understood. And so often part of my offering to God is that I'm willing to, to sacrifice that need of feeling understood by people and really learn how yeah. to get my need to feel understood directly from god and mm-hmm. you know in first corinthians 7 paul talks a lot about this um so he says actually that it's better to stay single if you can but in our culture uh the, just to be frank the the church world doesn't make it easier in the Protestant world, at least, it does not does not make it easier for a single person to be ordained. It's mm-hmm. harder. It's harder. You got, I had to jump through more hoops and prove all kinds of things. Anyway, so Paul says it's better to stay single if you can, not just to full-time ministers, but to Christians. If you can handle it, <laughs> Paul says, <laughs> it's better to stay single. He says you will be more focused on the things of the Lord. You won't be divided between how to please the Lord and please a spouse. You'll be more single-minded in your ministry. You'll have more time to devote to the kingdom. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 even uses the word happier. Mm. If you're single, you will be happier if you stay that way. Now, how often in the Protestant world have we heard a sermon like that? You know, in the Catholic world, they, they have a different view of why you do that and what it looks like and what it's for and all that. Um, but the Protestants, when we tossed out some of Catholicism, we tossed out some of the the good messages too. And there's a good message here to hold up singleness as not something to think is weird um, or undoable. But Paul says it's better for many reasons. And, you know, I wanted to have a husband and children as much as any other woman did. God didn't, you know, supernaturally take away the desire. Uh, So in my 20s and 30s, I really wrestled. (laughs) Hey God. I wrestled. It was hard. I wrestled with the Lord about this. But as time went by, I saw more and more what the Lord was able to do in my life and how he had anointed me to do certain things. And I became much more content. As Paul says, I have learned how to be content with a lot or a little. I've learned how to be content being single. It wasn't easy, um, but I have found that it's better. I'm just going to say it. So if you're single out there listening, consider staying that way. Paul Paul says it's better. Um, I want to lift it up because it's not lifted up enough, uh, to say, you
0: know, and I find something that you said there, Susan is so critical. You know, if you're single, you can spend more time focused on the Lord and on his purposes. And I know I was single for many years. I didn't get married until I was, you know, a month shy of 40. Um, and I, when I was single and thinking I was missing out on being married, I was miserable, Mm -hmm. but there came a day where i realized i love my life i love what god is allowing me to do in my life and i am not going to um mour- mourn away uh-huh. the opportunities that he's given me uh-huh. Uh-huh. and after that my whole perspective changed and i was so much f- more fulfilled in what god had me doing now god did ultimately have me get married uh-huh. But for many years, I think, you know, when you're single, you can miss mm-hmm. so much of what God wants you to do because you, many people have that expectation that they won't be fulfilled until they're married.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or that there's an expectation that you should be or yeah. fill in the blank of all the reason why it's better if you get married. Well, we have to remember there are reasons that it's better to stay single. And, and I'll also just add a, a footnote on that. Um, I haven't missed anything. Mm -hmm. I've had the privilege of being invited into the families of all of my congregations. So I share in the milestones, all those milestones that you have in life. Births, I'm there. Baptisms, I'm there. Weddings, I'm there. Graduations, I'm there. Funerals, I'm there. So I haven't missed out on any of that. And if anything, I've actually had them in more abundance. Um, uh, and it's a privilege to be invited and treated like a family member at all of those times. And I've been able to do a lot of the things that I've done because I had the time and I'm not sure I would have had the time if I was committed to being a good wife, a good mother, because those are high callings. So let me, yeah, yeah, let me say it this way. It's all about calling ultimately, I had to realize that God wasn't calling me, at least he hasn't yet. <laughs> hey, God, you still could, if you wanted to. Yeah, I'm open to that. You can still call me to marriage if you want to. I'm not saying that, you know, you can't do that. I can see a lot of the fun, a lot of good that would be so I'm not down on marriage. Um, <laughs> but my calling thus far in life, God hasn't called me to to be a wife, God hasn't called me to be a mother. But those are callings and you need to have an anointing to be a wife, to be a mother, and that isn't the shape that the anointing God put on me has taken. Yeah. So,
0: far. so I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. In the past in the past few ye- decades, actually, the Episcopal Church in the U.S. took a turn away from some of the biblical norms mm-hmm. regarding sexuality that caused a lot of the Episcopal churches in the U.S. to leave that denomination and align with kind of a new denomination called the Global yes. Anglican Church. Yes, that's right. And the churches and clergies that made that decision paid a pretty big price for it. Uh, You had to make that decision and, you know, count the cost of what leaving the Episcopal Church would mean. What did you do and how did you make that decision?
1: Well, I didn't rush into it. I actually took quite a bit of time. I didn't do it alone. I was with a group of other like-minded clergy. So I was careful, I was cautious, and I was communal about mm-hmm. it. Uh, I didn't take it lightly, but it was serious enough where uh, a critical mass of us felt like it something needed to be done. So yes, I am one of the priests who was originally ordained in the Episcopal denomination, but then that institution began embracing unbiblical teachings and you just can't support something after a while when it goes too far astray. So I did help establish the denomination that's now called the Anglican Church in North America. That's the North American expression of the globe. America is not the only one going through this. Remember that Anglicanism is one of the largest expressions of Christianity on the planet, and that's because the British Empire was the biggest empire that's ever been on the planet. And everywhere the British Empire went, the Anglican Church went. And so the Anglican Church is huge. uh, We're one of the denominations with the biggest numbers in the world. I don't remember the stats off the top of my head. And so this is affecting Anglicans all around the world. And so in North America, those of us who wanted to stay, just stay with the biblical moorings we've always had, had to, um, quote unquote, start a newer institution (laughs) called the Anglican Church in North America. So yes, even though it's new, The way we look at it is we just stayed put with the original biblical commitments that we would made while the institution of the Episcopal Church started changing some of its commitments. Um, And it was worth it. It was worth all the change. Change is
0: hard. When you made that transition, you left a bit of security. I mean, you probably pension and health insurance and probably some other things, but... I know God is always faithful to show us his way when we step out of faith. How has he led you? What has he done for you in all of that?
1: I have had to learn how to walk by faith at a whole new level. Um, And I would say that it's, it's a lesson that the North American Christendom can learn from the global South Christians and others that we're used to having a predictable financial future. So in the Episcopal church, I could predict what my income was going to be as years went by because there was a grid and I could, when I'm in my you know, 30s, plan what my retirement was going to look like. Um, I'm not in that boat anymore. And so when I left mm. the Episcopal Church, there was no money, no guarantees, no nothing, nada. And so my path is much more like the way you know a Campus Crusade staff person raises their support. So that's what I had to learn how to do. So the Atlas Theological Center which i and a friend of mine who is a um lawyer incorporated we're 501c3 uh, all approved all of that so i had to start a brand new 501c3 and i had to raise money so atlas has monthly supporters uh just like a campus crusade staff person you know raises their support and that uh, monthly support that i've uh, raised supports myself uh the ministry Mm -hmm. of atlas and right now atlas is subsidizing the church where I pastor because where it's a new church plant with about 20 people so far we started with one (laughs) and we have about 20 so it's a tiny little church plant it's not quite able to be self-sufficient yet and so the Mm -hmm. money raised from the atlas theological center is subsidizing we're planting a church basically and look at all this stuff that god has done because i was willing to step out in faith in a way that i never would have done you know I, i have had to let go of the secular and even religious institutions have these mindsets of how much you should be earning, you know, on grid, right? You work for a job a certain amount of time. This is how much you expect to be making. So I had to set that aside of what I should be being paid and just be content with what I can be paid. And God has always made that enough for me. Mm. Uh, It's not what would be on grid, (laughs) but it's enough. So when I put the kingdom first, All my needs are met and God is faithful. And the result of all of that is I have a much deeper trust for other things too, not just money, but I I have a much deeper trust in the Lord because of the ways that I've had to be out there on that limb (laughs) Yeah, and watch him, watch him provide. It's been good for me. It's been hard, but it's been good for me.
0: I think of that verse, I think it's in Deuteronomy well, it's a a kind of a passage where it talks about how God led the children of Israel for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out and their clothing didn't wear out and all of those things. And he does, he does. I've seen it in my own life where if we will fully trust in him, we find out that things last longer, they work better. We don't have to spend the money that we thought we were going to have to spend. And he provides, even though it's not you know, cash in hand, he provides in so many other ways mm-hmm. that uh-huh. stretches everything yeah. to meet our needs. Yeah.
1: We never know what, what have could have should have been on a different path. You know, even if I had stayed in the Episcopal church, I could have, I don't know, had a lot of financial requirements come from left field somewhere and I would be in a worse financial situation there <laughs> Yeah, than I am here. It, so comparing is not a helpful mental exercise most of the time.
0: Yeah. So the Atlas Theological Center, it's all about discipleship, right? Helping people grow in their knowledge and character of Christ. And um, how have you seen God's fingerprints all over that and share some ways that you've seen him at work?
1: I think one of the things I get most excited about is how I see God bringing Christians from many backgrounds and denominations together. And even people who want to study but have not had a church connection recently or maybe ever the nuns or the disconnected you know we have all mm-hmm. these different groups now of people who might identify as christians but they wouldn't be like regular churchgoers of whatever kind and the great thing about atlas that i've seen god do is because people are still curious they still want to know like do pets go to heaven and why do you think yeah. so you know prove to me why you think that convince me that even if i don't agree with you that you spent time thinking about it you know And people Mm -hmm. want that kind of conversation in a classroom that you can't always have sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning or even at coffee hour or even in a Bible study in a home. You want someone, uh, an opportunity to go deeper. And so what I've seen God do um, is bring Christians from all these backgrounds together into one classroom and they seek to learn at, at a deep level. And we get beyond the surfacy things that might separate christians i'll even say you know should women be ordained or not <laughs> you know that kind of thing it's not right yeah depending on what you believe in that it's not going to change whether you go to heaven or not you know people who believe it are going to go and people who don't believe it <laughs> are going to go and i'm okay right, with that right so atlas provides an opportunity a setting for people to study at a deeper level that they can in a typical church setting of whatever denomination so i get really excited about seeing hungry Christians get together. So in one classroom of 10 people, I've had five different churches represented, all from the same town. And then they get to know each other, and we're kind of cross-pollinating, helping Jesus's prayer in John 17 come true about Christians being united wherever they come from. People come to class who don't even go to church, you know, because they're spiritually hungry. So I, I get real excited about that. And then what I see is that that group of people gets bonded with each other. Again, I go back to relationships. They get bonded with each other, relationships. And then when a need comes about, they become the do-it crew. You know what I mean by do-it crew? I uh, do. They become the do-it crew. And and so we've had youth projects, uh, outreaches to the needy, well, animal welfare, some overseas involvement. You know, when I need a do-it crew, it turns out to be that group uh, even more often than... A subset from one specific church somewhere. So I, I love the do it crew kind of outcome from the commitment to deeper study.
0: Yeah. So COVID probably changed your model a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and being a computer programmer, you probably went online pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if someone's listening, to the podcast and wants to take some courses, what do you offer and how could they go about doing that?
1: Yes, we're so excited. That did expand. There are things that shrunk, but there are things that expanded in the last few mm-hmm. years. And so we've hopefully made it very simple and straightforward. You just go to our website, www.centeratlas.org, and you click on the online studies tab that's at the top of that homepage and you'll be taken to a list of dozens of courses. I teach two right now that I have written and developed myself, but what we're committed to providing is PhD level teachers that you can access economic accessible excellence online. And so the other classes are taught by the seminary professors who wrote the textbooks. So when a textbook gets published these days, the publishers are adding this online curriculum attached to it, and then they get the professor to provide whatever they need to, to help you go through that textbook. So you find a textbook that you wanna study, the person who wrote it will be accessible to you. And then it's a self-paced study. Some of those are self-paced. Some of them I teach live um, when I have enough students sign up for the same class. Uh, online. And then I teach in person. So, but online, anybody can take a class at your own pace from a PhD level person who wrote the textbook. And I have dozens of those listed that you can choose from.
0: Well, we started our conversation today talking about your book, Pet Prayers, but you have another book I mentioned called The Scriptural Theology of Eucharist Blessings. Mm -hmm. And uh, many faith traditions use the term communion, Mm -hmm. which is the same as Eucharist. And, of course, your book was written for those studying theology at a master's or even doctoral level. But I'm sure there are nuggets of truth that can be applied to all of our lives to deepen our relationship with God. What are some of those things?
1: Oh, good. I'm so glad you went there. Yes. So, by the way, Eucharist, Eucharist, oh, it's just the Greek word for give thanks. We just sometimes keep the Greek. And so that's why we use the word Eucharist. But you're right. It's called communion. Uh, which comes from Koinonia, which is fellowship. So it's all about the fellowship table. And so the book gives little nuggets like that. Just where do the words come from? It's one big, long Bible study, this book. Hmm. So I do not do a liturgical study about the different liturgies that churches use. It is not a liturgical study. It is not from one point of view of one denomination. It's not about Lutheran's view or Episcopal view. It's not a historic study so it's not about what did eucharist look like at whatever church or country at whatever time it's none of that the question that led me to write this book is if communion is such a big deal and it is because in some way it's central to almost every kind of christian church right almost every kind of christian church you go to they're going to say communion is some kind of big deal okay so if that's true why is communion such a big deal what does Scripture say about communion, and why it's supposed to be such a big deal? That's what my book is. It's a Bible study. Mostly, it's from Exodus, so it's a. It could have been listed in addition to a theology book. It's a, it's a study from the book of Exodus, from the Gospel of Mark, and Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So it tracks from the Old Testament through the Gospels to the Epistles. So it takes a whole sec, a whole looks throughout Scripture, and what happened is. I didn't go in knowing what I would find. That was the question I went into this study with. I spent seven years (laughs) studying this question. And what I learned is God, this is going to be a big statement for some, but I'm just going to throw it out there. God has told us how he wants us to worship him. God has not left us on our own to figure out what pleases him in a worship service. God provided a paradigm of what right worship is In his sight. And this Bible study reveals the paradigm that God gives in Scripture, throughout Scripture, not just in one place. This is big, huge, overarching. This is a big deal to God. This is how I want you to worship me. Mm -hmm. And the paradigm provides elements of what I call right worship, righteous worship, worship that is right and good in the sight of the Lord. And so the book unpacks the paradigm and points out these different elements that God says, I want you to have as you worship me in any given worship service. And so the book shows how the communion service is the setting. It's God's given setting to experience God's presence in a powerful way. And the book details what goes into a setting like that. So basically, if you do these things, God promises to show up. Hmm. God promises to show up. If you do worship in this way and usually we call it,
0: I mean, I know you wrote a big treatise on it, but are there like,
1: yeah. One of them is the greatest commandment, putting God first. So Mm -hmm. often you have a call to worship and you proclaim who it is you're there to worship. You have to be really clear about who it is you're there to worship. And that's not as straightforward as you might think as the church becomes more secular and pluralistic. So that is not a given always. Uh, another is humility. Um, Even churches that claim, and people, myself, (laughs) claim to be humble, uh, the service can help a person arrive at a more humble state. And that is part of the responsibility of the worship leader, is to help do something to help the humans get to their place. So we recognize God's place, we recognize our place. Often Mm -hmm. confession is part of that. Figure out a way. I'm not saying you have to say these words, you have to do it in that order. I'm just saying in the paradigm, there are these elements. And yeah. these elements often have been put together in such and so way. Another one is the word, all the way back to Ezra. You know, you have to have basically a pulpit with the word being read, reading the word, and then explaining the word. So it's yeah. not just evangelicals who focus on the word. There are parts of the church that could learn again the importance of having the word central and the table, the bread and wine, whatever you wanna call the actual act of receiving something that God says, you know, I'm gonna use that act of obedience. It's a symbol, it's a physical prayer, right? So if I'm in a classroom and I say, does anyone have an answer to this question? Someone raises their hand, that action is Mm -hmm. a communication. Action is a communication. And so um, the paradigm includes physical prayers. There are things we're called to do with our bodies. It isn't just a mental exercise. Um, and so that can come out in a variety of different ways. And there are others too, but that those are just a yeah. little teaser.
0: Yeah. Well, those are good. I mean, and they're not what you would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much bigger than just, I'm going to take the bread in a certain way and I'm yep. going to yeah have the wine or the juice in a certain way it's yeah it's not it's it is bigger it's about the worship it's how how we approach god
1: i didn't find god nitpicking on the details yeah (laughs) in the paradigm but the parts of the paradigm that are there are repeated over and over and over again in multiple ways to the point where like i was convinced these things are important to god and if we want to encounter him in the most powerful way we can the idea is positioning ourselves how can we position ourselves to be most receptive to God's presence. And a lot of this has to do with how do we position ourselves in God's presence? Of course, God's always there. But how do we position ourselves? And the paradigm teaches us how to do that.
0: Well, Susan, I I, I could have a long conversation. We're going to have to just take some of our conversations offline, I think. It's been a joy talking to you. Yeah, let's. (laughs) So as we end, I like to ask my guests if there's a woman of the Bible whose story is inspired, encouraged, or taught you something, and how her story connects with yours. Mary
1: Magdalene is one of my favorites. And I have a whole study about why I believe she is Martha's sister and Lazarus' sister. And uh, So I've done a lot of work with her. Uh, the term Magdala is not a geographic term. It's actually a new yeah. name. Like uh, Saul was named Paul or uh, Simon uh Simon Peter Simon was called Peter Mary is the Magdala and Magdala mm. means uh, pulpit and she was the first person to proclaim that Jesus was resurrected and wow. so yeah I really see Mary Magdalene as more important than most realize but not in the ways that the pop culture or Jesus Christ Superstar or whatever those might say the reasons why she's big I, I think she's really important because she was a woman with no ceilings. She wanted to learn from Jesus when women weren't expected to learn. She was willing to open her mouth and say that he's resurrected when people weren't expecting a woman to say something like that. She was willing to fashion her whole life to go where he went and to follow in his footsteps and to sacrifice whatever it took to do that. So yeah, she's she's one of my heroes.
0: Amen. Well, your journey, Susan, reminds me of Psalm eight, where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Verse 10 says, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Um, For all those who are listening, God is faithful to teach us all the way we should go. He leads some into the beauty of motherhood. Others he places in the marketplace to be a testimony of his goodness. Some like Susan, he calls to spend themselves equipping other saints for work of service, while still others sow into ministry through finances, volunteering, and more. In fact, as a company of women, we can join together to make a huge impact in caring for widows and orphans in their distress. I invite you to join us with a gift at HerGodStory.org by clicking on the Widow and Orphans tab to help us with that. But wherever God leads you, trust Him, for His unfailing love surrounds you. Check out the show notes to see information on the Atlas Theological Center as well as Susan's books. And go to HerGodStory.org for blogs, free resources, and to find out more about the Somebody Cares Widows and Orphans Fund. If you need prayer, feel free to call or text the Somebody Cares 24-7 prayer line at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. Susan, would you pray for everyone who hears this episode of Her God's Story and and then pronounce a closing blessing?
1: Oh, sure. It would be my privilege, my pleasure. Precious Jesus, precious Jesus, you are precious Jesus. You have sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter and our guide and our protector and our equipper and our healer and our fill-in-the-blank whatever we need. God, you know us each as individuals. And you call us together as a community, pray for this community of listeners. And I pray for each individual as they think of you as the God of no ceilings, as they think of you as the God who knows them personally and has a um, uniquely shaped calling for each person. Every person listening has a uniquely shaped calling that you've tailor-made just for them. And I pray now for each one that you, oh God, in Jesus' name, would remove any barriers to that person fulfilling the calling that you've shaped just for them. I pray, oh God, that you would raise up the valleys. I pray that you would bring down the mountains and that you would create a way. You are still the creator. I pray you would create a way forward. Mm-hmm. I ask you in Jesus' name to rekindle hope to revitalize compassion to ignite enthusiasm all for the glory of god and the extension of your kingdom and i pray that the peace of god which passes all understanding would keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of god and of his son jesus christ and i do pray that the blessing of god almighty the father the son and the holy spirit would be upon you and remain with you always In the merciful and mighty name of Jesus, I pray.
0: Amen. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.